Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, good, good evening or good morning, depending on where you are. Um, and welcome to episode 93 of Podchat Live. We are recording this uh, 27th of May 2021. And uh, really excited to have uh, two people uh, who are big fans of their work, uh, both associated with Cause Health. Um, we're going to talk a bit, let them talk a bit more about what, what that is in due course. Uh, we have Dr. Uh, Rani Lil-Anjum, who is one of the co-creators or developers of, of Cause Health, um, and Mr. Alex Murray, who is a podiatrist and one of their education partners. And um, Cause Health, and I'm going to let them go into much more detail on this but my my sort of uh, and I'm no expert but my brief understanding of it is it's a it's a project which is focused on rethinking causality complexity and evidence in healthcare and we all know uh, in daily life that causation and the principles and uh, of causation sort of influence almost every decision and interaction we have with our with our patients most people are aware of, of the adage you know correlation uh, doesn't equal causation because uh, if it did then we'd know that uh, Every time Nicolas Cage released a film, there was an increase in swimming pool drownings. And that one's courtesy of spurious correlations on the Internet. But we're going to go into a much, much deeper uh, level of, 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 of dare, we, dare we say, philosophy um, about causation and how it applies. So I might start, Alex, if, if I may, by coming to you, because I'm, I'm fully conscious that most of our audience are clinicians. And what I've said may well have already made them reach for the button to switch off. So your, your mission, uh, should you choose to accept it? is to try and convince our listeners why they should stay listening to this episode, why this is such an important uh, thing to consider as a podiatrist, as any clinician. And perhaps you could go about that by telling us how you got involved in Cause Health and what it, what it brings to you as a, as, a, as a clinician and what it brings to your practice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I, I would start um, really with, with my background because the, the first thing I'd say is I'm not a researcher. Um, I'm not involved in any research. Uh, I am 100% a clinician, and um, but I also do so education. So it's really everything I say is is all about my own desire to try and like help become a better clinician, and then in the in the um, and then pass that on to people and, and, and educate them and go, well, this is what I've what I've learned to try and try and help you. So it's not coming from a, from a base of research. Uh, I'm a podiatrist and a strength and conditioning coach. I, I work in Canberra. So I work in both general podiatry and um, high-performance sport uh, arenas as well. So hopefully that that also keeps a few people to realise this is really down to earth. This is what we do with with not just these one-off patients as well. That this is this is every patient, and this is the often that sport context. Everyone goes, oh, it's sport. Um, so really, what what sort of happened with me is um, I, I was in a clinic. Uh, I um, I worked for quite a prominent podiatrist here um, and uh, joined when I was when I was a new grad and came along and I just started seeing things that just didn't make sense. So I would see patients that uh, my boss would have seen will do the same treatment, different results. Um, whilst I'll be um, seeing similar people with really, really similar conditions, completely different uh, backgrounds to how that, that, um, condition came about, but the same treatment. And, um, I've also seen patients that come in that with really, really what looks like similar conditions should be similar, similar treatments and get completely different results. So this idea that, you know, we were identifying a, a diagnosis, something that was going on and saying, this is, this is the one condition. This is the exact treatment that's going to work. Just didn't seem just didn't seem to work. It just didn't seem to apply. And 
the more I tried to become very systematic in approach, it just, it just wasn't making sense. And to a certain degree, a lot of, um, you know, uh, my, my boss and a lot of people, you know, in that sort of generation were all saying, oh, it's just, it's just a bit of psychosomatic stuff, like don't worry, or it's just, you know, you just got to puff them up and make them feel feel good about what's going on and that that's what gets people buy-in and it's this they're not doing the treatment properly um but when we started looking at the research we started when i started looking at the research i started to see it's not that that simple that there seems to be many treatments that can work and there doesn't seem to be one treatment that treats an entire condition plantar heel pain is a classic you know where we see people that come in with uh who are very sedentary um you know 40, what was that thing that we taught in, in university? You know, plantar fasciitis, it's 40, 50s, female, generally a little bit overweight um, as sort of a, a group. But we also then started seeing people who were 20 years old, runners, you know, really, really athletic, starting to get heel pain. And it just didn't make sense that they were the same condition. So essentially, I started to have a lot of questions. And where I sort of ended up as a roundabout way was looking into finding uh, complexity um, in injury prevention literature. And it sort of explained that, that you can have uh, the same condition reached to by many different ways. Uh, and there's many different ways that someone who can have a condition can get better. So again, plantar heel pain, we think, you know, as a conceptual basis, it could be just, you know, we're looking at load management, you know, there's many different ways that we can manage that load, exercise, um, orthotics. Um, it could just be simply uh, reducing running for a short period of time in certain cases. So we started to, I started to really find that incredibly helpful because it, it, rather than seeing patients and looking for one, the exact thing that we needed to do each time, it was about saying, well, actually, if we're looking at the research and we're understanding it and we've got this idea that, that people can, a condition can come about multiple different ways and people can recover multiple different ways, it's about finding the best path for that patient. All of a sudden, it was incredibly freeing to be able to go, well, I've got all the research is telling me i've got all these different options you know neoa for example classic um recent paper came out saying you can do both high intensity and low intensity exercise for it there is not one that's better even though the that's what the results said but the study still said why would you do high intensity because it had this idea that there is one treatment that's better and if the one treatment that's better if they have the same outcome the better treatment is the one that has the potential for least risk so a lower intensity exercise why would you just do that but to me, it now screams, well, you can do both. If a patient comes in that wants high-intensity exercise, they have knee, no knee osteoarthritis, there's no difference. You can do both and get a good outcome. So for me, it was very freeing. And that sort of approach essentially is what led me to Cause Health. Um, so Cause Health was essentially a finding ways that um, we could explain this to clinicians that was doing research and showing that this is what was happening in the human body, that we need to understand complexity. We need to understand that, you know, when we're looking at heel pain, we can't just uh, look at it and say it's caused by this one thing, which is pronation or caused by this one thing, which was a foot posture. It said it can come, you know, we can get to that by many different means. And, and here's a framework and here's a, a process that we can use to understand that better, that we can apply in clinic, that we can start to, you know, change the way that we think. And in that process, become better, more evidence-based clinicians, especially in a space where we have limited evidence and we need more of that thought process uh, and a framework to sort of get through. So that's sort of 
my my story, uh, how how I got here, and um, yeah, being involved in Cause Health has been fantastic because I get to learn so much stuff from from some very very smart people, and um, it's been it's just been uh, incredible help on the on my clinical uh, application of it. Well, I think what you say there, Alec, a lot of things you say, I hope certainly myself as a clinician and many other clinicians listening will, will, will that will resonate with them that, that those scenarios we have in clinic where things we do that our colleagues do don't we don't seem to get the same outcomes those uh those kind of simple solutions that we're taught or that we hope are, are true um and that we look for don't seem to be the case so hopefully that's enough to keep people listening rani can we come to you and, and sort of get your take on a few things because we are we are guilty as as health professionals podiatrists i speak uh, the royal we um we are guilty of having a patient uh, a human a human who is an incredibly complex ecosystem present to us in clinic in pain which we now know is an con- incredibly complex and multifactorial and emergent experience yet the patient wants a simple reason as to what's caused my pain we want to sometimes give them a simple reason and we are guilty like alex says of saying oh your heel pains because of your pronation or your knee pains because of your leg length difference could you uh, you know and go back as far as you need to with regards to sort of schooling us on what 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 we how we should reconceptualize causation uh, as a concept but could you perhaps guide us as to how we could behave a bit better uh, based on on what what sort of theories we have now around causation or what cause health is, is the messages it's trying to put out there yeah yeah thanks thanks griff uh i'm very glad you started with alex because that was a very nice setup <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so in 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 cause health we are working on certain concepts, uh, certain types of questions uh, about, for instance, what what do we mean by cause? When we say, does this treatment work? What does that really mean to work? Um, Which treatment works best according to the evidence? What works best? uh, What does that mean? And according to what types of evidence? What does evidence, what do we mean by evidence here? And, And when you say that, well, maybe there's a high probability that it's going to work. What do we mean by high probability? Um, does it mean how often something happens elsewhere? Or do we mean how probable it is for you? Do we mean for your subgroup, like uh, being a male, uh, being uh, in this in this age, having this in this diagnosis? So what exactly is it these concepts are supposed to mean? And when we say complex, what do we mean by that? And what can we mean? Uh, when we talk about complexity and evidence, for instance, because if you want to be evidence-based, typically now in the evidence-based practice framework, it means that it's based on statistical uh, data. So we gather a lot of numerical data uh, from other people. So when you want to know what is best to do here, what's going to work here, you don't look here you look at the data from other people. So what happens to your patient? It's an anecdote. But what happens to other people in a study? That's evidence. And what we're saying in core self is why? Why is what happening here? Why is that not uh, interesting evidence uh, about causality? Why is it only evidence if this person is placed in in a study? And so, so when it comes to this idea of uh, the cause, the effect. It, I think we are, as a society, we are within this type of thinking that there is one cause for each effect. And we, it might be the trigger, 
So it might be the last thing that happened. It might be the main responsible thing. <laughs> so it might not be the trigger because the trigger might be the, the straw that uh, broke the camel's back. So it might just be the last little thing. And the main thing is what happened before. But, but typically when we have the statistical evidence, we will look at one type of intervention and one type of outcome. And then we are not interested in all these different contexts and what they brought with them and what happened in each individual case. We're just interested in the common cause and common effect. So if we did this, how often did we get the outcome that we wanted? And so if, if we think of causation in that sense, it's really not very what we call very deep knowledge of causality because it just tells you how often things happen. So for instance, if I want to know uh, if dropping this pen will cause it to fall, I can of course count how often that kind of thing happens, you know, uh, but it's not like I'm learning anything about the causal relationship. I'm just seeing that repeating this will get me repeated falling. If you if you want to understand causality, we might think that you should understand under which condition it happens and when it doesn't happen, which, which kind of factors, which kind of properties and, and which kind of contextual factors might counteract the effect from happening. So, so in a clinical study, for instance, yeah, you can just count numbers needed to treat. So maybe it works for seven out of 10 compared to this other treatment that only works for four out of 10. But then the question is, well, the person in front of me, is it going, which of these two are going to work for that person? Maybe none of them. So what is best evidence for this person? So if you look at it from a statistical quantitative point of view, then it's all about finding the perfect subgroup. You know, so it's like, okay, people who are like this person, uh, what happened to them? Um, but you might also think that, okay, so maybe we know something about how the treatment works, how it works and how it interacts with the body. Maybe we know something about what kind of things that would typically hinder it to work. And then we want to find out with this person whether they are the right sort of what we call mutual manifestation partner for this treatment. It's a bit like if you want to give people peanuts, you should first know if they have peanut allergy, you know, and if they do, it doesn't, it doesn't help that most people like peanuts and that it's healthy for them. So, so it's about understanding the how and the why we say in cause self. So if you want to really think of cause and effect relationships, the counting might give us an indication of whether you have, uh, whether something works, but it's not going to teach you anything about why and how it works, which is maybe what you need to know whether it's going to work for this person. And you also need to know who is this person and are they the type of person who this will work for? So it's a bit like, I think it's very common that we think of probabilities and risk in that sense. We look at risk factors. So if I want to know like, what's the risk of me having a fracture? Um, yeah, you might look at my subpopulation and see, oh my God, all these people are having fractions all over the place, but I'm just home on my sofa and having a home office. I mean, what on earth is the risk? It's not very high risk at all. But then if I buy a kick bike and take my border collie on the bumpy road, downhills, then the risk would increase. <laughs> but, but only for me, not for other people, for me. So you see, those are two different ways of thinking of it. It's what happens elsewhere that you can count. And then it's like, okay, but what about me? What about this person? 
what is it here that can give me a clue? It's two types of causal insights. And I think the fascinating thing there is that in our clinics as clinicians, every clinical encounter we have, every interaction we have with someone who's coming to see us is 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 an individual, you know, sort of uh, interaction with that that particular individual. Um, yet we, we we lean on the evidence base, the population level evidence base, to to inform our decision making. So, to to my mind, the two things that well, not the two things, but the two main things that we normally like to at least a, uh, pretend we have a handle on are the 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 sort of um, factors about that individual that predispose them to injury risk. Because then we can be so bold as to say that we may be, be able to prevent or, or perhaps reduce their injury risk in the future. Um, so we'd like to believe that we have a reasonable handle on that. Um, and I'm not sure that we do. And we also, like you've already said, like to believe that when someone comes in with pathology X, that we now know what the things are that, you know, like Alex said, for plantar heel pain, as an example, we know that the tools in the toolbox to reach for because the evidence tells us that that, that will cause pathology X to improve. So uh, but based on all the things you've just said, how do we, how do we, um, <laughs> that's the best, I don't, I'm not even intelligent enough to ask, ask word this question in my head, but how do we take uh, the evidence base and we're not obviously poo-pooing it and we'll come on to talking more about evidence uh, shortly, but how do we take the evidence base alongside the context of its limitations and how do we then answer those kind of questions on that individual one-to-one level, if indeed we can. Are you asking me now? Well, Alex, feel free <laughs> to jump in and, and reword that question more intelligently if, if you can. Yeah, I mean, I can, I... I can say just one thing, because I would say that if that's difficult, it's not the clinician's fault. It's the way the whole system is set up to tell you that what works best in a population is what you need, is all you need to know what's going to work for your patient. And I would say that's not true. I think that that's that's exactly the point, that when we look at the evidence, let's say we take an RCT um, and essentially what we do, so I'm always fine when I'm sort of looking at research, I kind of go, okay, so who's the population they test? And they go, okay, so we'll take heel pain. It's, it's sort of the, the most common condition that we see. And we go, okay, so who, who has heel pain in this study? And they go, okay, it's people from 18 to, you know, 80. So people who can sign the form to say that they, they, they can enter the study and are adults and can make it to the study. So you've got all of these people who, huge range, different activities, all these sort of different people that are coming into this one study and, we average all of their results. So what we've got is we've got this average of 40 to 50 because guess what? We had people from 18 to 80. What's the average person that's going to turn up for the study? Probably when we take into account all those outliers, the average is always going to be in the middle. It doesn't accurately tell us who actually has it. It doesn't tell us anything about them. And then what we do is we give them a a standardized intervention and we then have this outcome, which is, oh, some people got better. Some people didn't. And there's no answer of who got better and why they potentially got better um, and what, what we actually do with that information. We only know that, hey, you know, 50% of people got better with a, with a foot orthotic and it doesn't tell me anything about that patient in front of me 
and the mechanism by which the, uh, the, the foot orthotic work or the mechanism, which it didn't work. It doesn't tell me the mechanism of how the condition came about. It just tells me that this could work in some people. And that's incredibly valuable information. I'm never going to say that's not, but it's not incredibly valuable information for making a decision on that, on whether the patient in front of me, it's a foot orthotic. And what we've, what we're sort of saying is that we need to get better at looking at that and saying, well, hold on a second. I need to figure out what it, the, 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 the factors of this patient that's going to help them get better. And from a clinical perspective, that's sort of where potentially clinical experience comes in uh, quite a fair bit in terms of we've now got all of this information out there and we should be searching, we should be using these filters on on, on um, evidence and starting to figure out, well, then how can I take this evidence if this is true, that some people are getting better, some people are not, and understand what's going to happen in my patient. So when we, we do have a patient that has, uh, we give them an orthotic and they don't get better, we can go, well, that, that does make sense. Well, what other options do we have? What other information do we have that, that could tell us what could help for this subgroup or this population? And if we don't, it's then about what systematic approach can we have to treating that person that then can help us figure out what's going to work best for them rather than sort of just saying, well, this should work because it worked in, 80% of people in this RCT, but there's still 20% that don't get better. And I think probably the other big thing is that when we look at most statistical analysis, like we look at the results, they're qualitative measures uh, like, do you think you got better? You know, rate it on a Likert scale. Here's five options. I'm a lot better or I'm a lot worse or I'm a bit better or I'm a bit worse or no change. And that then becomes a statistic. And that that then says, well, you know, this works 80% of the time, because a lot of people turned up and said, well, you know, 80% of people turned up and said, I got a lot better or a bit better, but there's no quantification. It's not actual um, data. So in, in one sense, uh, so, you know, we can look at that and we can just ask our patient, you know, we did something, do you feel a bit better, a lot better? And we can start to, to understand that, yeah, the statistics aren't absolutely set in stone in that sense. It is, they're, they're, they're just asking people and and we what they feel like and we can do that in our clinic as well we can be systematic in terms of asking people okay we've tried this do you feel better do you feel worse how much okay and we can start to use that as a, as a guidance so so sort of treating patients when we don't have a lot of evidence we can sort of treat them as our own little study and, and systematically follow that that approach okay alex look i'm gonna i'm gonna just i, I totally agree with what you're saying but <laughs> um <laughs> there's I'm on your side, but a common response, say, from the people who do the research to that kind of argument is, oh, you just don't like the results of this study, so you're going to use the logical fallacy of special pleading to justify not implementing this research into practice. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not saying I agree with that approach, but that is the response you'll get to those kinds of arguments. So I wonder how you'd respond to that. So... Um, I'd probably say it was, it was interesting. So when we when we did um, as part of sort of my my interviews with with a lot of course health people, Roger Kerry was was at pains to make this point that it's not we're not cause health is not trying to say that um, the, you know choose evidence and say oh this is not important or being anti evidence. Uh, it's more of I would explain it like an expansion, and, and this is what happened when we when we look at the biopsychosocial model of health. Um, exactly the same as all, all, all cause health is trying to say is that we need to expand beyond just this very 
rudimentary understanding that that RCTs are the top level evidence. RCTs are, are about stripping everything away, and so you don't get things that essentially could introduce bias. So you don't get bias. But what it does do is it strips away everything that happens in a clinic. So when someone rolls up, there is going to be non-specific effects that are going to affect your results in the clinic. And we need to understand that because that's going to affect your results in the clinic. Um, we can't just look at the RCT on the top of this pie. Now, that being said, are we saying that RCTs are useless? Absolutely not. Are we saying that we shouldn't use them? Absolutely not. They're just only one way of uh, helping us figure out the uh, causation. So if we have, you know, 50% of people, and, I, and I'm just sort of rounding things here, get better from plantar heel pain with an orthotic, that's, we can't, we're, we're in a well-controlled well, uh, RCT. That's real. That's always real. 50% of people got better with an orthotic. Now what we have to do is we have to understand why. And that might involve doing experiments that have more bias but are more targeted to certain populations to try and essentially then combine all the knowledge and say, so so how does this all work? What's the mechanism? So it's not sort of saying, no, this evidence is incorrect and we're just choosing not to apply it. It's saying how do we actually make this make sense with our population um, so it's taking that evidence and it's taking this framework and saying we need an expansion because this alone doesn't doesn't tell us not that this is wrong. If if that if that sort of answers that that question. Yeah, my, my interpretation of this is is like you say, not poo pooing the evidence, but acknowledging its acknowledging it in the context of its limitations and what it's the way it's been designed and then layering that on top of like we said the complexity of of the individual human in pain I, I listened to that talk of yours Alex with Roger and and the word he used which I, I heard that I'd not heard before which I, I loved was um, this concept of clinical freedom in that you know you, you don't get to sort of say this this research this RCT is, has some limitations therefore I'm going to reach for the crystals i think he said or you know the i'm going to rub horse hair on this tendinopathy it doesn't give you the it doesn't give you the uh the sort of the card that means you can just do whatever you want um but but it's acknowledging those limitations but i wonder if um we could consider the real world scenario where we are a clinician who says okay i embrace all of this but then when we get into our clinic tomorrow morning um you know the one thing that 2020 and all of the things that year threw at us highlighted was that society as a whole uh, doesn't really love living in the gray you know nuance seems to upset society it wants hard fast answers it wants black answers it wants white answers and and there are going to be clinicians probably listening who are saying okay I, I i understand all this but when my patients come in they want me to tell them what's caused their problem and they want they want someone to deliver a confident sort of um appraisal of the assessment to tell them this is what's caused your problem and this is how i'm going to fix it and i use that fix in the in the loosest sense of the word um i know you know what i'm talking about here alex and i wonder if maybe alex you could talk through how would the clinician um sort of um tread that line between embracing what what cause health philosophies are but actually the real world scenario where where patients don't seem to want the discussion about you're an individual and this is complex yeah, I, I, well, I think that when you said, you know, patients want to know what the cause is and exactly how we're going to fix it, uh, my first, um, my first sort of response is, 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 do they? Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, we see this in the manual therapy debate in, in, in physiotherapy 
and I'm I'm very careful about about tr- treading into that debate, um, not being having any training in manual therapy, um, and and that that means that I can't possibly know what I'm talking about. Um, but there is this idea that patients want to know exactly what's happening and exactly what we're going to do and exactly how we fix it, and. I don't think that's exactly true. It would be nice, but I think there's a level of if we can't have that certainty, do patients really want a false sense of of certainty? Do Should we be giving them a false sense? If I asked them and I said, we have this more nuanced way we can understand it and I can talk to you about um, what we do know. I can talk to you about what we don't know. I can talk to you about uh, the nuance. I can talk to you about different options. I can help make sense of what each option would mean for your life. Um, I can talk you through all of this and then I can help based on the information that you've given me, help you reach a decision or we can reach a decision together on what we think is the best path forward um, and be aware of the times where we would change that, that, that course that we're choosing based upon the information we get as a result from what we try. And I think patients are going to choose option two. Most of the time when we go, well, I'd much rather someone who talks to me is real with me um, and doesn't give me this false sense of confidence or, or security and just says, look, this is what we're going to do. This is what we can. And I think this is the focus. What can we change? And I think there's a difference between what can, what causes something uh, and what can we change? Because if we look at, for example, the, the paper that really sort of got me interested in complexity, I encourage everyone to read it. It's not cause health. Sorry, Rani. Um, is the bitten <laughs> NFN paper. And it, and it just, it just collates a whole bunch of information about ACL injury risk. And it puts up this big map and it says, well, you know, it's dynamic knee valgus is potentially a, a factor, but it's only when you have, um, hip muscle weakness. There's uh, unanticipated environmental effects. There's fatigue. There's all these sort of things that are uh, in, impacting each other. And what the focus really is, is saying, well, you know, if someone is in basketball or is in ballet and, you know, there is no way to completely prevent them from getting an injury, but there is, what can we control? What can we actually modify and change? And it's not ascribing causation is in the sense that I'm, if I eliminate um, this factor, you know, it's never going to happen again. It's just saying that this is something that I can control. Here's the things that I can't control. The fact that, um, you know, you've got this six foot seven, you know, very large man pelting down a court at you and you could just land funny, get knocked over. That might cause, still cause an injury, but it's saying, well, if we get you strong, if we monitor your fatigue levels, if we load manage you effectively, if we make sure that as a, um, uh, you know, the basketball association that sets the rules ha- takes into account how these rules will affect how people will play and tries to not put them in situations that are high risk of injury um, based upon based upon those rules, we can actually reduce the amount of injuries. And, you know, being real with people and, you know, being able to say, you know, you have an ACL injury, you are at higher risk of, of, a, of another ACL injury or when we're not going to be able to control these factors and having that nuanced discussion is much better than just saying, right, we've got you strong, off you go. And then when they come back with an ACL injury, they go, well, that didn't work. And you say, well, it probably worked very well. It's just the fact that you had a six foot seven, very large man run at you. And when you landed, knocked you over and th- there's your, there's your injury again, or, you know, something happened that, that you could didn't foresee happening and, and that that's what that's what um put you in a situation 
where there's no no way you could possibly be strong enough to stop that from happening again. Yeah. Rani, I'm going to circle back to an earlier point. I'm going to put you on the spot a tiny bit. Can we ever, can we ever, based on, on, on what we've talked about and all the things we haven't talked about yet, can we ever truly know the causation of something, whether it be the, the reason someone got injured in the first place or whether it be, you know, the, the effect of, of an intervention we gave? Is, can we ever truly know um, or is it, is it never going to be that simple? Do we, do we truly ever need to know if we can't? So at least uh, there will always be things that you didn't know. Uh, if you don't talk to your patient very much, then there's a whole bunch of things you don't know that you should be knowing. Um, I would say the kind of knowledge you get in your education is really closely relevant because it tells you how things work, how things work in the body. You know a lot about how things work. But the evidence is not about that. The evidence is about how often something, something, something works. But it's also averaging out that effect. So when, when you say that something works best, you mean best on average compared to another intervention. And that tells you extremely little. So when people say there's no evidence that this works, okay, what does that mean? It means maybe that there is no RCTs performed because there couldn't be an RCT designed for exactly this kind of thing. Like, for instance, nutrition studies. So nutrition studies are not that easy to do with RCTs uh, because it's not easy to just isolate certain things. So you might have to do other types of studies. But if you don't acknowledge those kinds of studies, you're going to say there is no evidence that, which doesn't mean that there is evidence that it's not working. So, But once you say something is evidence, we just have to remember uh, how narrow that is. And I think we are now treating whole populations uh, in standardized ways according to what works. So, so the kind of um, ethics that we are using now is to do to everyone what works for most. So we kind of sacrifice everyone that it wouldn't work for in the study because it would work for most people. Or a lot of the treatments that we're offering for instance, in, in pharmaceutical um, interventions, they don't work for most people. So some of the most common drugs prescribed, they work for one in 10. So you, you have numbers needed to treat is like 10 people, sometimes 25 people. It means that you give drugs to people who would never benefit, but in average on the population scale, you're at least preventing some people from getting a heart attack, for instance. So if I want to know if I should give you cholesterol-lowering uh, pills, I could ask, for instance, do you have any in your near family who had a heart attack? And you can say, yeah, actually, my brother just had one. It's like, okay, then we are going to give you some, we will give you some drugs to prevent you from. But you're not your brother. You're not your uncle. You're not your, your father. You know, you might have a completely different lifestyle and a completely different physiology as well but you might get a lot of side effects you might not even have the receptor needed to to benefit from that drug but we still say that this works best and everyone should do it so i think this kind of standardization where we take something that in average is supposed to work and we say do this to everyone it it's really what we're we're maximize we're maximizing utility or benefit on a population level but not for the individual. But as a clinician, you want to maximize utility or the benefit for your patient. And then you cannot, 
I mean, necessarily you cannot average them out as a standard uh, or average normal patient. I mean, just because in your study, for instance, if you say people are 20 to 60, that doesn't make you 40. It's just, sorry. I cannot say, yeah, okay, so most likely you're 40. No. <laughs> so it's just, uh, why, why, do we, why do we do it like this? Well, we do it like this because it's easy uh, and time efficient. It's cost efficient. And the people who take the, I mean, the bill <laughs> are the everyone who are in the marginal group or the ones who were not part of the studies or not represented in the studies. So if, if you take everything you learned in your education instead and everything you learn about your patient in front of you, you already have so much causal evidence or so much causal knowledge that it wouldn't count as evidence in the sense because in this type of framework that we are now, the data counts more than theories. So what you understand about mechanisms of the body, they can say, well, you might be wrong, but the data, they don't lie. But the data can still tell you something that is not the full story. And we know that the data doesn't talk about your patient. It talks about other people. I, yeah. I would I would jump in here and, and, and make, make a, a couple, potentially a couple of points. Um, one would be there's a, there's a really, really good book um, called Medical Nihilism um, by Jacob. I think his name's Stranger, something, something. Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> but he makes he makes a point, and and sort of what what the whole. And I, this isn't a. I haven't actually talked to Rani about this. I'm not sure whether she'll she'll agree. So what I'm saying is not representative of course health. Um, but it's sort of this approach and saying if if you read all the evidence that's out there and you really understand it and you really understand what it's trying to do, you would come to the conclusion that we really don't know what's going on. We actually really don't have a lot of evidence to put trust in science and say science has all the answers. And I think that's, that's the, that's sort of where I've ended up where if we have this understanding that, that science doesn't have the answers, it's just a process and it helps us understand things as best as we possibly can. And we're not saying that it's not real. It's just saying, there's a lot of gaps in, in what we have and we, we can't just apply things carte blanche. We can't just say this is the result and this is what's going to happen everyone on the population-based study. We say we've got this wonderful information, but there's so many different gaps. How do we make sense of this and how do we help people in you know that come into our clinic make sense of this? That's our role. That's clinical experience. That's what we should be doing. Um, but it's also not saying that evidence is bad. If anything, you know, what, what Jacob says in his book is he says it's it's a it's a shot against all of the people that are applying quack medicine or, or not being having any evidence at all. It's not saying open the floodgates, let anything in. It's actually saying this is more of a reason we need to be incredibly judicious with what we're doing to patients because the things that we are taught are positive may not be as positive for the patient in front of us as we think based upon these studies. So we have to be incredibly careful and what evidence we have to, we have, we have to apply it, you know, really judiciously think about it. You know, what is it doing exactly for who, why thinking about those, those sort of studies, because other, you know, we, you know, science doesn't have the answers and we can't say anything carte blanche. So I think that's, that's sort of a big point. Um, there's also a really sort of great example uh, that we used um, in our sort of course health series of um, a guy on Twitter, 
actually who uh, I think it was TikTok. Um, I'm already scarily that that old that I that I'm struggling to tell the difference. Um, <laughs> and he was a guy, and he put up this video, and he just sort of said, you know, the the health insurance company has flagged me as potentially malnourished based upon you know his his weight, and it's a video of him in a mirror. And so they sent, the, he said, they sent this nurse over and he said, and the nurse was like, I think you're potentially malnourished. And he was like, I think we can agree. There's a better explanation. He was missing his whole leg from his hip. And, <laughs> and so the, you know, they're just going through this questionnaire and she was going, no, this, this works really, really well. You know, oh, we've identified you as potentially malnourished, but the nurse had was just constantly going through these questions of, you know, what are you eating? What are you doing? You know, and it was just blatantly obvious that, what, what what was going on was he was just missing a leg that's like, you know, 30% of your body weight or 25% of your body weight. Uh, but that was the system. The system said, you know, the nurse was like, well, I have to fill in this paperwork. You've been identified as potentially malnourished. So we have to do this questionnaire, despite the fact it was very clear that he wasn't now malnourished. And I think that's a really apt sort of way of explaining, I think, what sort of happens sometimes with our patients where, you know, they come in and they, and, and, you know, we're identifying these factors and we're saying, this is a potentially, you know, what's going on. And this is potentially something that's happening. And we're not, we, we run the risk of, if we just look at the evidence and say, well, you know, this is exactly who gets the problem. And this is exactly, you know, what we're going to do for it. We end up with false understanding. So my, you know, experience was always, you know, if someone's coming in with heel pain, they're generally 40 to 50 and they're, they're a woman. And that, cause that's what the data tells us. Um, but it's the average data. So I was very confused when I started seeing people in their twenties and I was thinking, geez, you know, something must be really going on here, weird or wacky or something. And the more that, that I practice, the more I realized, well, actually, no, there, there is just a, a spectrum. You know, there is just a huge spectrum and, and the average result was exactly like Rani said, someone who came in when he was 20, someone who came in who was 60 and we, and the study saying 40, you know, that's, that's the person who gets it. Let me, at the risk of bleating on about heel pain, even more than we already have, I'm just going to mention a, a paper that we recently published and get both of your takes, not on the paper, but on the response to the paper from clinicians. Alex, I know you know this paper already, but it was a paper, um, uh, looking at how to treat heel pain, the best practice uh, for heel pain. Um, and it sort of took three, a three pronged approach, I think, to try and minimize the limitations of just a good old fashioned systematic review. But it did a systematic review where it looked at all of the research uh, historically that, that um, looked at the things that work in inverted commas. I'm nervous about saying that, Marnie, but the things that work for heel pain. It then asked a load of the world's experts the things that in their hands that they feel work best. And then it got the patient perspective, uh, sufferers of heel pain and asked them what, what things do they think work. And it tried to bring all of these three tenets together and sort of synthesize it all. And what came out was a, was, was a guide on the things that might be worth considering and at what stage. Now, the interesting thing I think was, uh, Craig's pulling up here. The interesting thing I think was um, that the response from from clinicians, from, from, you know, people who treat heel pain again, and I'm not talking about letters to the editor here. I'm talking about, um, tweets, uh, you know, the, the 2021 version of the letter to the editor. If you've got a problem with the paper now, you, you just tweet it, don't you? Um, but interestingly, the things that weren't particularly, didn't come out as particularly favorable, that there was poor, um, poor suggestions of or poor levels of evidence for, um, if people were already doing those things, 
in clinic. So the big one being strength work. Um, another thing being things like class four laser. People are doing those things in clinic. They are seeing um, what they believe are positive effects from those interventions, i.e. It, it, it works for me kind of uh, anecdote. Um, they were very, very happy to read that paper and say, oh, yeah, but they they, they left out strength work or they left out laser. It, it didn't really massively influence their practice. Now, based on the things we've said about sort of things working on an individual level, where, where do we sit with that? At what point do we at what point do we say, OK, if you are if an individual in a clinic is getting patients better, is that just OK, whatever they decide to do? And at what point do we have to flag that? Some clinicians in some corners of the globe might be doing all sorts of all sorts of crazy stuff um, under that guise. I, ho- I hope I've worded that question reasonably. Was did, that did you... my was that my <laughs> my challenge? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, Randy, do you, do, you, do you want me to to jump in and then you can you can sort of pick up the the, the, yeah. the pieces? Anything yeah. I missed? Um. I think it was an incredibly good paper um, because it, it, but I think the, the, the interesting thing was the limitations. So for example, strength work was an interesting one and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, being, being an author, um, uh, the strength, the issue with strength work was it wasn't the studies done enough to be able to say. Um, And I think one of the biggest sort of things that came out was the amount of studies that were done on shockwave. Um, and I think that that was the that that's a very interesting sort of point where we're saying you know part of the the issue that we run into is that things just might not be studied, and that's not saying that oh no, but I, I think everyone should get strength work, um, and it just hasn't been studied, and and you know I'm, I'm doing you know God's work, you know giving everyone strength work, um, and, and the studies will come. It's it's sort of saying that there's there's that there's that limitation that comes into it, and. I thought it was a really good paper because it came out with some guidelines and said, well, here's the evidence that w- that we have that says these are the things that work. So when we you did did look at the um, shockwave and then said, well, actually, it has all these results, but stretching seems to, to be the, the go-to thing. Even though this has all these positive effects, stretching still seems to be the thing that, that is the, the better, most cost-effective thing to do to start off with. Um, and, and this sort of information is incredibly helpful in terms of providing a core approach so saying you know stretching and taping seems to be the core and then figuring out what's going to work best for the patient you know is it going to be pain education is it going to be orthotics is it going to be um something else and this is what the evidence that we do have um and when we start to understand the nuance you can start to understand where you what you can do so for a classic sort of example in in defensive of sort of strength in a way if someone wants to run if someone wants to jump if someone wants to do activities if they've never jumped before and they're not trained and they don't have the ability to jump or the strength to do it they won't be able to jump and won't be able to get back to their activity where we're probably looking at the literature at the moment is that you know there isn't enough evidence to say that that's potentially going to have a whole effect so if you if you have someone that comes in and you you know we can reason out and say well here's the core approach we should be probably taping you we should be um getting you to stretch and then what else can i add on top of that what what's going to make sense to you and someone who's 50 that works in retail stands on their feet all day it's probably not going to you know if i'm thinking about strength work i'm thinking about well 
you know, what's the benefit to that person? And we don't have the evidence to say that's going to be helpful. So we can ask them, we can consult them, we can talk to them and say, you know, is this something that we want to apply or is this something that we don't? And compared to something when we say taping or we say stretching, we say this is the thing that we know is really quite helpful and effective. Uh, when we have someone who's coming in that's a runner um, and there's potential other benefits of strength work and just using this as an example, um, showing my strength coach um, background, um, there's some other benefits of strengthening there. And we say, well, this might be a useful adjunct that if we're thinking about you no longer running, if we're thinking about you no longer doing the sport of choice, can we keep you active and moving? Can we apply this in such a way that, you know, get you training that, that doesn't aggravate your pain? And is there some benefits from that? Now, if you say, I've been doing all these exercises and suddenly my heels, heels a lot, pain's a lot better, we don't have the evidence to say, oh, it was strength work that did it, but we sort of created a plan that said, well, we taped you, we strapped you, we gave you this strength work, we gave you a guidance on how to keep moving as best you can to try and get the best outcome. We applied these things for these reasons. You seem, you, you got better. Perfect. We created a, a nuanced plan, but we can't then say that everyone who comes in, that's going to work for them. We have to go through that reasoning process for each individual and also that, that consultation process of, well, these are things that work. These are the things that I think would be helpful for you, either for your pain or for other reasons. Um, you know, what, what makes sense to you? And then when they go and do it and they say, wow, this, this, these exercises are really, you know, giving, making my pain worse. Well, this is, this is their, their experience. We go, let's change that. You know, what, what evidence, you know, tells us is that, well, you know, strength work isn't, you know, incredibly evidence-based and you're saying it's, it's irritable or it's irritating you. Well, let's, let's pull that back. Ronnie, I've thought of a slightly different way to word this before I get your take on this same thing as well. So rather than talking about the, the, the mechanism of effect of the intervention per se. I really want your, your thoughts on the the philosophy or the, the thinking behind at what point, like Alex says, we're not picking on strength particularly, but we'll, we'll use that as an example. At what point do we say, okay, strength doesn't have much ev- 